Amen. It's been a minute. Can you help me out where we are today? You might have to go back to last week's live stream to find out what happened. But yes, thank you, Pat. A little bit of humor goes a long way. So uh, Pastor Tanner has done an excellent job in leading us through 1 Corinthians 15 these last four weeks, and I appreciate so much the wonderful truth that those passages, uh, those sermons have just massaged into our hearts, hopefully, this expectant hope and sure confidence that we have in Christ that to be absent from the body truly means to be present with the Lord for the Christian. So this morning, we're going to go back to the book of 1 Samuel. You'll find it on page 251 in in the Bibles that are provided. If you don't have one, feel free to take that as a gift from South Canyon and uh, hopefully that will encourage you in your reading and your knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. So this morning as we look to 1 Samuel, we're going to look at chapter 29. I know the handout in your bulletin says 29 and 30, and that was the very best intentions, but um, I figured, you know, four weeks off, I was going to come back ready for bear, and... um, that wouldn't be fair in the sense of maybe too much, too fast. So this morning we're going to just look at chapter 29, if that's okay with everybody. <clears throat> so uh, let's, let's read the text and then let's make some observations. Please hear God's word from 1 Samuel chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel? who has been with me now for days and years. And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place where you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is, this, is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peacefully, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? 
What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, and may he write its truths on our hearts. Lord, we ask simply that you would take your word and teach us what it means to know you, to trust you, and follow you. We pray that your blessing we be on us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. So David has a problem. Just to give you some backstory, if you're here and you haven't been a part of this series in 1 Samuel, we're going through an Old Testament book that details the events that took place when the judges, those rulers over Israel, that kind of leadership system passed on to the kings. Now, there's this first king of Israel, his name was Saul. <clears throat> he appeared to be the hero. He was head and shoulders taller than any other Israelite. He seemed to be a man of modesty and humility early in his reign, but over and over he has sinned against the commands of the Lord and not following through the Lord's instructions. And therefore, God has raised up for himself and his people another king, a man whom we find in this text by the name of David. And David, as his awareness, as his meteoric rise in Israel's national view, comes about, Saul becomes increasingly jealous. David actually marries one of Saul's daughters. He becomes a commander in Saul's army. But this jealous king is seeking to kill his rival, and he will not accept the Lord's plans to make David king after him. Instead, he diverts his attentions from his enemies without <clears throat> in order to pursue a loyal subject within. It gets so bad, as we saw in chapters 21 through 27, that David and Saul, <clears throat> excuse me, they're on opposite sides of the same mountain as they're chased, David's being chased. I mean, this is how close it is that David is near death over and over again. So David gets this idea that in chapter 27 that he is going to flee from the land of Israel and he's going to actually go to the Philistines, Israel's chief enemy at this time. And he's going to find sanctuary there. And this king, in fact, does give him sanctuary. After a few months of living in the capital city of Gath, the king is approached by David who asks, can you send me away? I shouldn't dwell in your city here among all your leaders. I'm just a man and so the, the Philistine king gives him a town called Ziklag, out in the wilderness, on the borderlands between Philistine, uh, Philistia and Israel. And it's here that David and his 600 men live and set down their roots, and for a year and four months, they live in the land, and they make raids against the southern territories of Israel. 
And in doing this, they're actually attacking Israel's enemies and killing everyone and bringing back all the spoils. And when the king of the Philistines sees what's going on, David tells him he's made raids against these territories, but he doesn't tell him exactly against who. So the Philistine king thinks he's killing Israelites. And this is the spoils of war. David's actually removing Israelites' enemies who live in that territory. But he passes it off. And the king, and that's what gives this king such an idea that David is living this great life in his midst. Here's the crisis that we find in this passage. David now is being called up for war with the Philistines, this time to really fight against Israel. You've got to think now. He's the anointed king of Israel. He has been living outside the land. For all Israel knows, David has truly become a Philistine. And yet David knows in his heart he cannot touch the Lord's anointed. Twice God had given Saul into his hand, right? Remember that? In the cave once, Saul was using the bathroom and David and his men happened to be hiding in the latrine, basically. And then there's another time where they're down in the valley asleep, in a deep, deep sleep. And his men, David and his men, are right there. They could have killed Saul two times. And David says, we cannot do this. But now, he's actually being called up to go against the Israelites in face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat. How in the world is the prince-elect, in fact, the king-elect, how is he going to get himself out of this pickle? And that's the, that's the nature and tone of this text. The crisis is David and his men are forced to join forces with the Philistines against the Israelites. But you notice what happens in the first five verses. The Philistine commanders, they see David and his men marching at the rear with the rest of Achish's troops. <clears throat> the land of Israel, or the land of Philistia, was divided up into five different kingdoms. And so Achish and his men are at the tail end and they're marching to war. The Philistine commanders, once they see David and his men, they ask Achish in verses 2 and 3, what in the world are these Hebrews doing here? And if you're, again, let me provide some background. What might not be so obvious to those of us who are new to the Scriptures is that the Philistines and the Israelites are enemies. And the comments that these commanders make reflect both shock and dismay to see these Israelites mustering alongside the Philistines. The background for all this can be seen in chapter 27. As I mentioned already, David fled and he has made a home there, which in Achish's mind, this man has made himself so offensive to Saul that the enemy of my enemy is now my friend. And so Achish sees nothing wrong with having David there. David and his men function as mercenaries. And so this isn't a shock to Achish, but these other commanders find such a different tone in all of this. And so they question why. And look at verse 3. Achish defends David's honor and reliability. He says, he's, he's been blameless in my sight. He can't go with us, they say, but he's like, why not? He's been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I've found no fault in him to this day. Well, they won't have it. 
David must go back. And so in verses 4 and 5, the, these commanders now are getting angry. No longer are they just inquisitive, but they're getting angry. And they demand that Achish send his men home. They, he will not be going with them. And in fact, I think there's also a little bit of rebuke that they give to Achish in verse 4. Like, you are so naive if you think that this guy is going to be faithful when we get into the thick of battle. After all, what better way for David to be reconciled to Saul than by turning against the Philistines and to fight for Israel? And what's interesting is that even here, this is the third reference that we find in verse, what is it, verse 5 and 6, to the song that became a number one hit in Israel. So it's traveled off to the land of Philistines, and they're lit, tuned into the radio stations coming out of Israel, and they're, they're aware of the fact that they, David did such a great victory, they actually wrote a song about him. When's the last time that's happened to you? And in fact, I don't, I don't want to also be so naive to think that this isn't a subtle jab at Achish. Because Achish was the king of Gath. And if you remember, Gath was the hometown of what Philistine champion? Goliath. So you got the guy who killed your guy. Well, maybe that's the way it works, right? Because he's bigger, he's stronger, whatever it is. He won, and so you want the champion. But don't be so naive, Achish, that this guy is true. So then Achish takes the message from the commanders as they're having their back and forth in verses 1 through 5, and then he comes to David in verses 6 through 10. And we see here that he informs David that first he affirms him. He's like, David, you've been honest. Which is ironic, isn't it? Because we know what David's been doing in chapter 27. And he says, as the Lord lives, he uses God's covenant name known to Israel, Yahweh. We'll get to that in a moment about the significance of that. But he affirmed David is honest, a valuable asset in the campaign. He was above reproach. Nevertheless, David, if it were up to me, you would be going with us. But the lords do not approve, and thus you and your men must leave before trouble starts in verse 7. And notice David's response. Were you struck by this as you read through this text? Look at verse 8. And David said to him, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? I mean, it's almost like David is saying, I deserve to fight against the Israelites. I want to fight against the Israelites. Again, this is really perplexing because David's supposed to be the champion of Israel. He's defended them for years against the very Philistines that he's going out to battle with. Has David become a hypocrite? Has he become a traitor, a rebel? We have to leave that tension there for a moment because for a second time in verses 9 and 10, Achish quickly affirmed David's character and integrity. David, I love you, man, but you can't go. You and your men must leave tomorrow at first light. And verse 11 helps us put a bookend on this as a literary unit 
right? It begins with the trip up to Jezreel, and then it ends with the Philistines going up to Jezreel, but David going in the opposite direction, back to his home in Ziklag. They met. They had this conversation, and then they separated ways. Now, here's where we're going to get to some application, and this is what's going to take the rest of the time. All right, we've looked at this text. We understand what's going back and forth. You got some background, so you know that there's real tension here. Is David, has he gone to the dark side? Is this like a Star Wars thing? Darth Vader, once trained by the Jedi Masters, has now become the embodiment of evil. In this chapter, there's only two references to a divine being, and whose lips do those come from? They come from the Philistine. Look at Achish in verse 6. As I mentioned, he used the covenant name of Israel's God, Yahweh. And then in verse 9, he uses a more generic term for God, Elohim. But it's, he says that he referred to David as an angel of God. So I'm not saying that Achish is a Christian. It's clear that he had respect for David. I mean, he fawned over him. He defended him to the Philistine commanders, the lords, the other kings. He told David twice that he thought he was a good guy and he had been treated fairly by David. Maybe he even had respect for David's faith. So let me make some observations for us as Christians regarding sharing the gospel. First, we know that we need to be ready to suffer for the gospel. In our efforts to see people come to know Jesus as Savior, not just a teacher of morality, not just an old guy from a long time ago, not just the uh, personification of a religious system, but really as their Lord and Savior, in sharing the truth about him, we may find ourselves dismissed or despised by those who reject the faith. Jesus predicted such things in Matthew chapter 10. And we as Christians also need to be not only aware that we will suffer for sharing the gospel, we, people will not like it, they will reject us, it will change and alter the relationships that we have with some, but we also need to be discerning about what true conversion looks like. So in the case here of Achish, we can't say he was truly converted, to Israel's God and worship of him, just because he used the language, his behavior hadn't changed. He's still going to go march against God's people. He's still going to go kill them with a, with a smile on his face as he does it. So we need to understand what true conversion looks like. Don't be surprised when you meet non-Christians who, like Achish, are intelligent and pleasant. It's ironic that the Philistine king had this view of David and not Saul. This is, this is Joel Harris I just quoted. Okay? We were talking about this text. And it's interesting that the king of the Philistines thought highly of David, but Saul didn't think highly of David. Saul should have trusted David, absolutely. He married his daughter. He had seen him fight for Israel. He heard David's words of affirmation. He should have trusted him. But David actually finds a stronger friend in a non-believer than he does of the people, the covenant people of Israel. 
Sometimes Christians, or um, excuse me, sometimes non-Christians can be better employers, better co-workers, better neighbors, even better classmates. They may show respect to us for our faith and conviction. And I think the reason that they're able to do that is a sign of God's common grace. We're all made in the image of God. And there's remnants of that as his image bearers. But here's a reminder for us as Christians, perhaps more honey and less vinegar will cause them to respond positively to the gospel. Now, Christian, let me make some application from this text regarding the work of God in your life. At times, God will work in our lives in quiet ways, but always effective ways. Who is it that delivers David from having to fight against his own people? Who is it that rescues David from this predicament? We would say, well, it was the Philistines, right? Their fears that David would betray them in battle were the reasons he was not allowed to go with them. But don't be naive to think that that's where it stopped. Ultimately, the hand of God is behind all this. He's using the, the, the well-founded fears of these men to keep David from having to go and be put into a really difficult situation. When David faced Goliath, God's presence was clear, right? I mean, here's this young kid who just takes five stones and goes out to fight a battle against a giant who's well-armed, who's got incredible history, who's got a military background and all this. And David has been a shepherd, and true, he's fought bears and lions and killed them. But he's not, doesn't look the part of one being prepared, yet he had zeal for the Lord, and he had a righteous indignation, and David fought the Goliath, and God gave him the victory. Here, what do we see? Here we see God is quietly at work. There's no great fanfare, and yet the result is the same. God saved David again. So Christian, let me just say, sometimes like that old poem of footprints in the sand, you know, there's two, and then all of a sudden there's just one, and I was in a great season of life, of hardship, and where were you, God? Well, I was carrying you during that time. Let's just remember that it is the responsibility of the church and the Christian to look back over our lives and our experiences and consider those moments where God has carried us where he saved and supported quietly and faithfully. And rather than using large, splashy, attention-grabbing events, it seems God prefers at times to work quietly in our lives. So quietly at times, we often may not see it unless we're intentional about looking and thinking. Why is that? Why would God choose to do that? I don't know. How's that for an answer? That's the truth. I don't know. But I know this, that God in his infinite wisdom acts with faithfulness and salvation for his people. What did we just sing just a few moments ago? Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine. Do you hear that? Though sorrow be mine, though need be mine, though death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. 
My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to Him I leave it all. This is a good reminder for us as Christians that sometimes we find ourselves in a pickle, in a tight spot, hemmed in, and there is no way out. And this isn't a passage that gives us a blueprint for solving those kind of problems. This is a passage that simply shows that God can deliver us from those problems. Now, if you're a non-believer and you're here this morning, we thank you for coming and exposing yourself to God's people and God's word. But let me just share with you a, a helpful thought that one commentator made about this passage. He said that the Old Testament does not portray the Israelites as wiser, more gifted, or even as nicer than the people of the surrounding nations. Their specialness lay only in their relationship with God. And when they turned away from God's covenant and ceased to reflect God to the surrounding nations, then they were indistinguishable from them. Let me just say, that didn't just apply to Old Testament Hebrews. It was, it's true of the church today. Right? Sometimes non-believers, you guys are kinder, you're wiser, and you're more trustworthy than Christians. Perhaps you've witnessed a Christian gossip at work and sow discord and, and, and be a backstabber. You've seen Christians steal hours from work and bill things that weren't paid for and, and they lie and they cheat. You may possess more self-control than the Christians you know do. But let me urge you to think about this. Don't conflate, don't bring together this thought that, that Christians... A Christian's sinful actions are the exact same thing as the Christian faith. They're not. Okay? Christians may be extremely poor role models, but that doesn't mean that's what our faith teaches us. In fact, it teaches us the opposite. True Christianity acknowledges our innate struggle against sin. It's in our very nature. And so the sad truth is, when you see Christians doing wrong, it's because they have turned their hearts from God. He does not condone such behavior. And in fact, you're sitting in the midst of a group of Christians like that. We understand that but for the grace of God, each one of us would be lost. We understand that our true nature is that we struggle against this pull, this gravitational pull towards sin. And therefore, we need deliverance from it. God has called us to embrace the forgiveness of sins that Jesus offers as a substitution, the very thing we're going to celebrate here in communion in just a few minutes. That he paid a debt we could never pay and his righteousness is so transforming that it not only applied to those people who were alive in that moment, but it will apply to any and all and every generation who call upon the name of the Lord. They're promised they shall be saved. True repentance, true godly sorrow over sin leads to a confession that Jesus Christ is a Savior. Not only do true Christians understand that how salvation works, but we also have been called to walk in the Spirit's power. And so, as I speak to you, non-believer, I'm preaching to the choir. 
I want Christians to remember that God has called us to walk in the Spirit's power, to flee temptation. And when we fail, we're to quickly confess our sin and turn from it. We are to seek restoration with God and reconciliation with those we've sinned against. This is Christianity 101. And so we come back to the text and verse 8. Why in the world... When David was given an exit stage right, did he stand there and pout? Why did he stomp his foot and say, but why can't I go? This verse has troubled scholars for generations, so don't expect an epiphany right here, all right? We saw in chapter 27, verses 8 through 12, that although Achish had treated David very well, David had no hesitations about deceiving this Philistine king. He passed off his attacks against the enemies that lived within the boundaries of Israel as though he were attacking Israel itself. And once again in verse 8 of chapter 29, we see David getting an Oscar for his playing up this outrage. And we, we remember, we are right to remember that more than once, David spared Saul's life. We know that he's not willing to kill the Lord's anointed. So how should we interpret his response? Is he feigning his anger in order to, dis- to disguise his relief that he would not have to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed? Well, some commentators think that David was seeking to use the battle as a cover to kill Saul and acquire the throne. Others think that he was using the cover as a way to do, in fact, what the, Israel, uh, the Philistine leaders were afraid of, to turn against the Israelites and to vanquish the foe and to prove once and for all his loyalty to Saul. And they use this. What David says may be carefully worded double talk. Look at verse 8. Why can't I go and fight against, notice, the enemies of my Lord, the king. Now just thinking about this, knowing David's attitude towards Saul, he was afraid of him, but he wasn't going to lay his hand on him. He did good to Saul every time Saul did evil to him. David proved loyalty even by fighting against the enemies of Israel who lived in the land. He was acting as he should. So I don't think David is saying what he's saying in verse 8 because he's itching to settle a score with Saul. I think he's using doublespeak. And if you look at this, Achish is going to hear David saying, I want to fight the enemies of my lord, the king, as Achish, your enemies are my enemies. But I think it could also be understood, David knew what he was doing. Sometimes skilled people at deception have a really good skill, right? Like, it's not right, but they're really good at it. I'll say this, and you think, Achish, I'm talking about you and your enemies, but my lord, the king, is actually Saul. And so I intend to defend Saul's enemies, or to defeat Saul's enemies, Bottom line, the Philistine lords had wisdom, and they wouldn't let David go with them. Bottom line for us, as we see God delivering David, is that God had plans for David to be a king for Israel to follow, a king that would reflect God's glory and grace. 
And God was going to see those plans accomplished, even if he had to use sinners to do it. And so this isn't the first time that God rescued David. We've seen he did it over and over in chapters 17 through 27. He delivered him from Goliath numerous times from Saul. And here in our text, God used the reasonable fears of the Philistines to deliver David from having to fight against his own people. Now, what does this show us about our God? Remember, I, I, I said this isn't, this isn't a diagram for how to get out of trouble. Because all we're being told is the circumstances that took place. There's no directives that are given here other than David hit the road. So this isn't, this isn't going to speak directly to the circumstances that you may have gotten yourself into. But it shows us something about our God that we do need to uncover and we do need to think on. It shows we serve a God of incredible grace, a God of mercy. And that should evoke joy and praise from the hearts and mouths of God's people. Like Paul, we should throw our hands up in the air and say, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Romans 11.33 we, we can't also forget the significance of how the end of chapter 27, how it concludes. Look at this. Look at, look at verse 11. It says that David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. That's Ziklag, the city that the Philistines gave him. Right? Now I want you to go to chapter 27 and look at the last verse of chapter 27. Remember, it's been a while. Saul had removed all the witches, all the mediums and the necromancers from Israel. He was trying to purge the land of anything that would compete with the the Yahweh worship. And yet he finds himself in a place where the Philistines are mustering for war, and he's vastly outnumbered. Samuel is dead, and God is not answering Saul. So he goes and finds a witch. God raises up Samuel from the dead to give Saul the message that today, uh, tomorrow, the armies of Israel, all your sons, and you will be with me. You're going to die in battle. The Philistines are going to have an incredible victory. And what does Saul so broken by this? He snuck out at night to go meet this witch, and what does the end of the verse, or end of 27 say? It tells us that, uh, that Saul, oops, I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong chapter, aren't I? 28. The end of 28. It says that Saul rose and went away that night. Now, I I think there's something really cool, literally, happening here. The the author of 1 Samuel is, is contrasting Saul's bad news with David's good news. The fact that God had abandoned Saul and would not answer him, and yet God is even quietly redeeming and rescuing David. Saul leaves in the dark. David leaves as the morning light is dawning. There's hope here for David. Saul has no hope, and so darkness is befitting for him to depart from. There's a contrast between these two characters. And it is God who is showing mercy to David 
and he's giving his judgment to Saul. And whose character is, is shining forth here in chapter 29? It's not David's, but it is God's. It's God's character on display. As the psalmist says, surely his goodness and mercy will follow his people all the days of their lives. That's your God, South Canyon. God didn't cut off David. In fact, God who had saved him from enemies in the past is the same God who saved him from the enemies in Philistia. I'm not saying that we should sin so that grace may abound, but I am saying that we can know that God is with us when we find ourselves in predicaments we couldn't have predicted, in circumstances that are beyond our control, that we can trust that God is faithful if we do what is just and live uprightly. We should never presume upon such a deliverance in our own lives, but the fact that God showed this mercy to David demonstrates God's faithfulness, not David's skill. And just as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, this should be a comfort to every Christian, God is faithful to his people. He will provide a way of escape from temptations to sin. And these plans that God has for David must be accomplished. And he has plans for every Christian He has plans to grow your faith, to use you for the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. He has plans to sanctify you and refine you and to purify you from sin. And those plans must be accomplished. And God, who began that good work in you, will be faithful to complete it. He has the power to use anyone, even sinners, to accomplish his purposes. So as we close, we think of the mercy that God has shown David, and we are reminding ourselves, we ought to remind ourselves that God has shown us this same mercy through Jesus Christ, his son. And that is why we are celebrating the Lord's table today. Because in Christ, we have been made new creation. But I want to ask as we close, how will you respond to this grace Maybe you find yourself today in a similar situation of your sin is being confronted. The choices you've made have placed you in a vulnerable place. Maybe the path, the off-ramp for you is easier to find than it was for David. But what will you do because God himself is working in your life to show you things about himself his goodness, his character, and then God is also trying to show you things about your own heart, that you're deceitful, that you're desperately wicked, that there's, there's no end to the complexities of how sin is going to manifest itself in your life. How will you respond to such grace? Will you humble yourself before God and cast yourself on his mercy? It's a simple invitation And it's one we make here regularly at South Canyon because we know, we know that every Sunday there are non-Christians who are in our midst who need to hear the gospel. And we know that every Sunday there are Christians here who need to hear the gospel. To remember, nothing can separate us from the love of God. To remember the great mercy that God showed us in saving us the first time is the same mercy and grace he extends to us every single day. And he doesn't get tired of doing it. We need hope. And the only hope is in Christ.
Lord, we pray and ask that you would truly move within your people. We pray that even whether it's young people that are here hearing the the gospel and the message, or whether it's people who have just shown up this Sunday or they've been coming for some time, that you would stir the heart, that you would prick the conscience, that you would bring about an understanding of the gospel, a realization of a need for the gospel, that true conviction of sin would take place beyond emotions, beyond words, that truly heart change would be desired. And we pray that you would grant life, everlasting life. We pray also, Lord, that you would help Christians to continue to walk in obedience, in grace, They would not just ask for forgiveness after knowingly committing sin, but they would seek to do what is right and to pursue you and avoid the sin altogether. Give victory to your people. And even now as we look to the table that reminds us of the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, we pray that we might be able to celebrate this table with an understanding that Christ took the wrath that was meant for us. A wrath we deserved And that we who are in Christ can boldly approach the throne of grace because of Christ. We ask all this for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Amen.